Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. We are continuing Wednesday night, moving chapter by chapter through the book of Luke. And right now we're in the middle of a section where Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And as he makes his way towards Jerusalem, he's teaching along the way. And we pick it up here in 14. It says this, one Sabbath when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So here's the scene. Last chapter, chapter 13, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue as is his habit. And a person comes in, a woman comes in who has had a disabling spirit for years and years and years. And Jesus heals her. And the leader, the ruler of the synagogue gets angry. And he stands up in front of the people and he basically accuses Jesus. And he says, Jesus, there are six days of the week to heal people. Don't heal people on the Sabbath. And they have a confrontation. And so that sets the scene for this. Now we have another Sabbath. And after Jesus is taught at the synagogue, he's invited over to the ruler of the Pharisee's house. And he shows up at the ruler of the Pharisee's house and there's all these Pharisees and there's all these lawyers, which, you know, if someone invites you over to the house and they show up and they're like, hi, this is my wife, this is my daughter, this is my lawyer, beware. Don't know what's going down, I'm just saying, especially if it's your neighbor and you guys are having a little fence dispute or something, right? And just, all the lawyers are there. And Jesus and one man who has dropsy. Now, dropsy is a condition where liquid fluid accumulates in portions of your body. Very obvious, very painful, very disabling. I call this portion the setup. I mean, this is clearly a setup, right? We've got all the Pharisees. We've got all the lawyers. We've got Jesus. We've got one sick dude. It's the Sabbath. What are you going to do, Jesus? They're trying to set him up. Because here's what the Pharisees want to do. They want to prove that Jesus is not a man of his word. They want to make him out to be a hypocrite. They're hoping that he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. They're going to accuse him. And what they're going to say is, Jesus, you claim to be a prophet. You claim to be the son of God, yet you're breaking the laws. They want to prove that he's a hypocrite. So they make him a setup. And increasingly, in our current society, I feel like we're being put in these types of situations. You guys feel that? Like we're being put in situations where just like Jesus, we're being set up and we're being watched. The Christian teacher, how are they going to react to those new education guidelines? You're being watched. Christian business owner, how are you going to react to those equal opportunity laws? Christian mom, how are you going to react to your child's tantrum? Right? In the grocery store line, which is clearly a setup. 
all that candy and the toys. The children are tired. I mean, come on. It's not fair. Our enemy, just like Jesus' enemy, wants to portray us as hypocrites and specifically as unloving. That's what they want. You say that God wishes none should perish, that God is love, but how are you gonna react when that parade comes to town? Or that kid wants to befriend your kid? Or that couple wants to get married in your church? And more and more, I feel like the media and certain social agendas are not just counter to Christian beliefs, but designed to be combative to them. We're being set up and we're being watched. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? That's the question. What we're gonna do is take Jesus' advice. What we're gonna do is pay attention to what Jesus does. And here's what Jesus says. It's Matthew 10, 16. Jesus is about to send out the 72 disciples. He did it in Luke chapter 10, but they didn't record this little advice that Jesus gives his disciples. And here's what he says. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus says this, I'm sending you out. And the first thing you need to recognize is where you are. You're in the midst of wolves. Some of us need to recognize that. I, I tend to not look for wolves. And I think that's a good way to walk around life. You don't want to be constantly looking for a wolf behind every corner, but I also must be wise. I got to recognize that there's good people and there's fake people and there's broken people and there's struggling people and there's genuine and caring people and there's wolves. And wolves want to set us up and take us down to keep us from pushing forward this kingdom as Jesus has called us to do. So the first thing we have to do is realize where we are. The second thing Jesus says is, be wise. I'm sending you out among the wolves. Be wise as serpents. Now back here in our story, what Jesus does is so brilliant because they've set him up. And so he asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus in his wisdom knows there's no actual law about healing in the Sabbath because he knows the laws. Not just the laws that him and his father wrote, but all the laws that the people put in after that, all the additional laws, all the laws that were not necessarily of God's heart, of God's character. He knows them all. He's wise. And then he heals the man and here's what he says to them. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They had a stipulation in their own rules that if your ox fell into a well, you could pull them out. And it's brilliant. What this tells me is Jesus knew, understood, studied the culture that he was in. The people who were trying to set him up, he knew more about their rules than they knew about their rules. Are we wise? Are we studying? Are we preparing ourselves for these setups that are coming our way? Are we in our word? And I believe you guys are. 
Are we here on Wednesdays? Hey, look, it's Wednesday. You guys are here. You know, we went through this, um, uh, the series that Matt did before James, which was, wow, I just blanked. Ignorance, thank you. I'm ignorant of what the title was. Um, (laughs) And some of those were just so brilliant. And you're like, man, where did you come up with that? I know where he came up with that because I saw the stack of books he read. Are we studying? Are we asking the Lord, Lord, what sort of situations, what sort of scenarios are you going to put me in? May I study? May I be wise? May I be prepared? And then thirdly, and this is huge, this is what we're going to camp on for the rest of the night. Here's what Jesus says. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, when I looked this verse up this week, that actually surprised me because I didn't remember that it was innocent. I thought it was like kind as doves or gentle as doves. That's how I remembered the verse in my head. It's innocent. You know why they couldn't accuse Jesus of being a hypocrite? Because he wasn't one. He was innocent. He was without blame. And as our enemy and as our culture wants to paint us as unloving, and I believe that is one of the frontline battlefields of Christianity today, to accuse the church of being unloving, we need to be very careful to be innocent of that crime. And what's so interesting to me, what's so beautiful and practical about this passage is right after the setup, Jesus turns and he gives three parables to the Pharisees. And what was Jesus' accusation about the Pharisees? You're unloving. You're hypocrites because you don't love people. So tonight, we're all Pharisees. And we're going to take Jesus' advice. Three separate parables to help us be innocent. So in these situations, as we're challenged, as we're put on the spot, like Jesus, we can give a beautiful answer that brings healing instead of confrontation. So here's what Jesus says. First of all, so brilliant. Jesus tells this parable. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to be caring, if you want to be loving, be humble. That's what Jesus says here. And here's the illustration he uses. And what I love about this is 3,000 years later, it's an illustration we completely understand. Because here's what we have. We have a wedding and we have a seating chart. Do you guys remember making the seating chart for your wedding? How many of you agonized over it? Right? Like, okay, do not put Uncle Bob next to Aunt Sally because you remember the fight they had Thanksgiving in 92. Okay? We cannot have that. Keep your mom away from your stepmom, right? Aunt Edna just found out she has diabetes. Do not put her next to the cake table. That's just mean, (laughs) 
right? And it's the same thing. And in the weddings, even today, there is a table of honor, isn't there? It's for the wedding party. And then there's those tables that are close to the front and that's where the family is. There's a hierarchy of seating even our weddings today. Well, in this time, it was huge. You could tell who was who by where they sat. And if you sat in a place of prominence, everyone would look at you, everyone would notice you, and everyone would think, oh, they're important. That person's super important. Who is that person? I need to know who that person is. And what Jesus is saying is when you walk into a scenario like that, don't jockey for position. Don't try and make yourself out to be more important than you are. Don't be false. Don't be fake. Be humble. Do we do this in church? Do we jockey for position? Try to make ourselves appear more holy than we are? Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. That's why our enemy's accusation about us being hypocritical is so dangerous. But here's the thing. You can be a Christian and a member of Edgewater and a lover of Jesus and a struggling, broken, sinning person and still not be a hypocrite if you will be open and honest and stop pretending to be someone you're not. We have to be open and honest about how desperately we need what we're selling, what we're offering. The gift that God has, oh, we need it. Oh, I need it. And I was thinking about this, and this is just kind of an example in my own life, but I know I'm doing this, and I know I've done this, and I know this is my tendency. So every once in a while, you guys have been to a Sunday service. I think this is, don't raise your hands. This is actually an illustration about raising your hands, but in this case, don't raise your hands. It'll make sense in a minute. But most of us have been in this situation. We've been sitting out there on a Sunday. There's been a sermon. It's touched our hearts. It's convicted us. And then afterwards, there has been one of those calls to prayer. Hey, if you've been convicted, if you've been touched by this, if you've been hurt by this, raise your hand and we're gonna get some people to gather around you and pray for you. And we have not raised our hands. I don't want people to see that. I don't know what they would think. What are they going to think about me? Oh my goodness, are they going to think I need grace too? Yes, because I do. Man, I need, I believe we need, moving forward in our culture, a church full of open, honest, vulnerable people. So that when, right? So that when broken people walk through the door, they go, oh my goodness, I'm home. These people are broken like me. I think it's so important. I think it's so important that we be open and honest and not try and make ourselves out to be something like we're not because we will be hypocrites if we do. And then in this story, it's so cool because Jesus says, who puts people in the place of prominence, right? You walk in, you sit in a lowly place and what happens? The host, God in this picture, he moves you to a place of prominence, And I think that's an important key for us too here, to recognize who has put us in the blessed seats of privilege that we're in. And here's what I mean by that. 
If you're around church for a long time, if you're leadership, if you're Wednesday night crew, if you're core, people are going to see you. They're going to notice you. They're going to see you week in and week out. Sooner or later, hopefully, if you're discussing with people, someone might come up and ask your advice about something. Man, you guys have been married for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. Amen. How did you do it? And we give grace to God and we give glory to God and we give honor to God and we say, without God, we couldn't do it couldn't do it. He's the one who put us in this place of privilege and honor. We tried to mess it up a few times and he put us here. You know, I get people ask me as a business owner, people ask me business owner sometimes like, oh, what is the key to a successful business? And you know what I always tell them? Return phone calls, (laughs) which is actually super important. But you know, the truth is, man, without God's grace and mercy and provision, it would have failed. So many times it would have failed. So many times we've been protected and covered and taken care of. And I believe when people come to us and ask us or admire us or look up to us and we take every opportunity we possibly can to give the glory back to God, that takes the bullets out of our enemy's gun. It just does. It disarms him. But it's not just in church and even more importantly than church, When we walk out that door, we need to be more kind, more giving, more caring because people are watching. People are watching. And when we take every opportunity we have to be gracious and to be humble, it's a beautiful thing. That's the first thing Jesus says. He says, be humble. Next, he says this. And he said also to the man who had invited him. So Jesus turns now from the guests to the host. And he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Here's what was going on. Jesus just got invited to the it crowd party. Okay, we don't really get that here in Southern Oregon. Like if you were in LA, Hollywood, this would be, you got invited to that actor's party, right? If you were back East, this would be like, you got invited to that fundraising gala, right? For Southern Oregon, it's like, you got invited to that group's camping trip. This is the it crowd. And they were insular and they were exclusive and it was hard to get in. And this is not the first time they've invited Jesus to come join their club. They invited him a few chapters ago. Jesus, come dine with us. Come join the club. Come be in with the it crowd. And he goes and he dines with them and a woman shows up who's a prostitute And she starts crying and weeping and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and makes everybody uncomfortable. And then Jesus leaves that it crowd gathering and he starts associating with tax collectors and the prostitutes and podunk Galilee fishermen. And the Pharisees really come back to them and they say, Jesus, dude, if you want to be in the club, you've got to stop hanging out with those people. 
You've got to stop dining with sinners. And you know what Jesus does? He turns around and goes, well, unless you want to be in the kingdom, you're going to have to start. You got to start. It's not a club. It's not exclusive. Jesus' second thing to us is this. Be inclusive. Be inclusive. This doesn't actually mean don't invite your family to dinner. So no one gets an excuse here. It's not what it actually says. The actual words here is don't habitually or don't only. I love my family. I mean, we have dinner once a week almost with a whole bunch of us and it's awesome and it's just us and we don't invite a bunch of other people to that because it's special and it's important and we protect it but it's not the only people we dine with or the only people we hang out with it's super important Jesus says this hey you guys invite the poor to your feast invite the crippled to your feast invite the lame to your feast and for the Pharisees this would be really challenging because they don't really know many poor crippled or lame people. They knew one lame dude and Jesus healed him. So now they're out. And I kind of wonder about that for myself. If Jesus came to me and said, hey, I want you to invite someone outside of Edgewater, outside of your crew, outside of the normal group over to dinner and have a meal with them or have a conversation with them or sit down and really get to know them would I even know where to start? Would I even know who to invite? Would I even be willing? You know, we were discussing this at home group on Sunday and um, we were discussing, some of our home group, they've been going down to this event in Grants Pass and they're down to this event in Grants Pass and they're down there and there was this, there was this couple, two ladies and they were just all over each other and they were like, man, it just really makes me uncomfortable. And someone else said, you know, I get that, but I don't think that makes Jesus uncomfortable. Did sinners make Jesus uncomfortable? No. They make me uncomfortable. Homeless. Go invite a homeless person out to dinner. I mean, you don't necessarily have to bring them to your house, but just take them out to dinner, right? Like they're sitting there, hungry, need food, walk up, say, hey, let's go to Taco Bell. It's right there. Let's have a meal. A lot of us, it's way, well, he's probably just trying to get money for beer. Well, then he'll turn you down, you're off the hook. (laughs) But really, I don't think those type of people made Jesus uncomfortable because Jesus saw people as people. He didn't see someone as homeless. He saw them as a broken, hurting person who was made in his image. He doesn't see people as their sexual orientation. He sees them as broken, hurting people made in his image. And here's the thing. The more I'm around broken people, the less uncomfortable they make me. Now that's a great statement. I don't do that well. I really don't. This was so challenging to me when I read through this. A number of years ago, we had a warming center. You guys remember when we had the warming center over in the office? And there was a, um, a gal who I'd gone to high school with. And I saw her and her husband volunteering there. And that, to me, not knowing her well, hadn't seen her in 10, 15 years, um, like, that seems really out of your lane, right? Like, so I asked her, I'm like, how did you start volunteering at the warming center with homeless people? Because I saw some of the people volunteering over there, and I'm like, this seems like your lane. You just, you like hurt, broken people. Some of us have that gifting. But her, I was like, this doesn't seem like your gifting. And she goes, you know, I just felt like I should. 
and it was really uncomfortable at first. But I went again, and I went again, and I went again. And he goes, now I know their names. Now they know my name. Now I know some of their stories. Now when I see them on the street, I say, hi. I think we need to do more of that. We need to be on mission. It's really hard to accuse someone of being an unloving hypocrite when they're caring for hurt, broken, outcast people. It's just really hard. I think we need to ask God for more opportunities and do them whether or not we are uncomfortable. You know, we, um, as elders, early this spring, we read a book called um, a, a People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle, dealing with alternative sexuality. Such an amazing book. I can boil it down to one thing. Their people get to know them. Homeless people are people get to know that. It's just, it's this thing that it just keeps coming up and keeps confronting us. It's like Jesus got to know people. He got to know them. He dined with them. That meant he had a conversation. That meant he spent time with. And it was so beautiful. And so he looks at those Pharisees and he says, hey, you want to be loving? Get to know people who are on the outside. It's so interesting because the first section, he really is telling us how to deal with our peer group. It's all about relationships. Hey, when you're dealing with your peers, be humble. When you're dealing with those who are less fortunate than you, be inclusive. And finally, he says this, when it comes to your relationship with God, that's the final one, be all in. Be all in. That's what Jesus is gonna say here. He said, when one of those who reclined at the table, so remember, he's just said this, he's just made this challenge. Hey, you guys should invite the lame, the broken, the crippled. They're all sitting around there having dinner. And then one person says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus looks at him, probably gulp. Uh Uh-oh, what did I just say? And Jesus says this, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. You see a theme here with what Jesus, okay, perfect. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Confusing little parable. So here's what I want to give you. I want to give you kind of the cultural context, the huge underlying theme, and then the practical application when it comes to being hypocrites and being not viewed that way. Okay, so first is a little historical context. Here's how a feast would be. Here's how a giant banquet would be. You would send out invitations. You would invite people. The, date would, the banquet would have the date. It's really like a save the date card, right? Do you guys remember save the date card? Save the date. But it was a save the date card that you had to RSVP to. 
Okay, so you get your save the date card. The banquet's going to be December 23rd. You say, great, I'll attend. But you don't know where the banquet's gonna be or what time it's gonna be. Then the host of the banquet would prepare the banquet. And when the banquet was prepared, they would send runners out to everyone who had accepted the invitation. Hey, the banquet is ready. Now it's time to come. So that's actually how banquets were done. And then what happens is they're given three separate excuses. The first excuse is, I can't come to the banquet. I'm too busy with business, right? As an agrarian culture, when you're buying a piece of land, this is a business acquisition. More crops, more vines, more vineyards. I'm too busy with business. The second is an excuse about possessions, right? If your wealth is measured in the amount of oxen you have and you just bought five oxen, this is clearly about possessions, Hey, I'm too busy. I've got my stuff. I'm doing stuff. I've got my possessions. I can't come right now. I've got to go make an acquisition. I've got to go get more stuff. And then the third one is about relationships. Hey, I've got this new relationship. It's more important than this relationship over here. I can't come. So that's the context here of Jesus' story. The big underlying theme is that this is about Jews and Gentiles. That's the big underlying theme here. Because here's what happened. Jesus just gave this parable to these prominent Jewish men. And one of them says, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. It's basically like us saying today, isn't it gonna be so great when we get to heaven? That's what this guy just said. Isn't it gonna be so great when we get to heaven? And Jesus basically turns on the guy and is like, you think you're going, huh? Let me tell you a story. Because here's what he is saying. This person who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven, thinks he's going to make it to the kingdom of heaven because he accepted the invitation. And he accepted the invitation by being born a Jew. But he's too busy, or he's got too many possessions, or he's got too important relationships to actually show up at the feast. And so Jesus turns and says, I'm going to invite others. I'm going to invite people who want to come. I'm going to invite people who want to come. So here's the practical application for us in the way we relate to God, in the way our relationship is to God. Many of us, because remember we're Pharisees tonight, can find ourselves in this position where we feel entitled. Hey, I brought a dish to the potluck. I come to church on Sundays. I come to church on Wednesdays. Right? I might have even gone forward and taken an altar call or got baptized. And I say things like, man, I can't wait to go to heaven. But when it actually comes time to spending with time with Jesus, with our King, here and now, I'm too busy. I've got business. I've got stuff. I've got relationships. And I'm too busy. And they're good reasons. But here's the thing. Jesus is looking for us to do more than just accept the invitation. He wants us to attend the feast. He wants us to attend the feast. He wants us to dine with him and to put off other obligations for him and to be looking forward to be spending time with him. He wants us to be all in. He wants us to be all in. It's more than just accepting the invitation. And I don't mean that in a deep theological, let's discuss salvation in one saved, always saved way. We're not, that's not where we're going. What I mean is, this is advice to what I call mansion builders. You want to be a mansion builder? You want to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven? Here's the advice. Be all in. 
Don't just accept the invitation, attend the feast. Follow what Jesus says. Because here's the accusation the world has for us. You don't look any different than me, other than the fact that you have one less free morning a week. (laughs) You say you're all about being a Christian, but really, you're all about business and possessions and relationships. You're not all about Jesus. You're not all in. Romans 10, nine says this. We know this verse. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Amen. That's amazing. But Lord means more than just admitting he's creator. Lord means Lord, supreme, in charge of your life. What he says, go. I follow him. It's more than that. It's more than belief. It's submission. It's submission to something higher than myself or my business or my possessions. And it's that submission that brings a peace and a happiness and a joy that other people will want. It's so backwards. That's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom is backwards. Serving myself doesn't bring freedom and joy. Submitting to my king brings freedom and joy. And that's what our country wants. That's what people need, freedom and joy. And so Jesus says, hey, be all in. Be all in. That's what he says to the Pharisees. That's what he says to me this evening. So now Jesus leaves the feast. Okay? He's given his advice to the Pharisees. He's given his advice to me. Hey, you don't want to be a hypocrite in the way that you're dealing with people. You don't want to be called unloving. When it comes to your peers, be humble. When it comes to people less fortunate than you, be inclusive. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, be all in. So now he turns and he addresses the crowd. And it seems like a break in his theme, but Luke, so brilliantly, it's not a break in his theme. Because this is be all in part two. It really is. And it is what I call the reality check. Okay, so you have the first group who's like, I'm all in because I accepted, accepted the invitation. And they don't want to do anything. The second group, this is the group who was following Jesus to Jerusalem. They're traveling with him. They seem to be all in. And Jesus says, do you really know what that means? Let me give you a reality check. You really want to be all in? This is what it takes. And here's what Jesus says. Your Bible probably calls it the cost of discipleship. It's a great title. It's the cost of discipleship. Do you want to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Here's what it costs. Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to them, if anyone compels me and does not, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now he just has a lump of rocks. Or what king going out to encounter another king in, in war will not sit down and first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000. 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I found this parable super confusing. Like, I get it, but it just seems, I don't know, really intense and kind of harsh. Does Jesus really mean hate your family? We know he doesn't mean that. So what's going on here? And I read this great illustration that Phil Yancey gave for this. So I'm just stealing it. This is, this is it. Imagine, if you can, a heated political campaign. I don't know if you guys can imagine what that would be like. And we have candidate Jesus. And candidate Jesus comes up and pledges higher taxes and lower wages. He says there might be an economic downturn and you'll lose your house and maybe your family. Your healthcare premiums will go up. Quality of care will go down. Vote for me, Jesus 2020. And walks off the stage we'd be super confused because Jesus isn't a political officer. He's not on a campaign trail. And when we think of him as being on a campaign trail, this makes no sense. But imagine instead you're at a field hospital on the edge of the jungle in Brazil and the commanding officer stands up and explains that 100 miles into the jungle is a village full of men, women, and children dying of cholera and we have the medicine to save them but the journey is going to be treacherous you won't be able to take any of the gear you have so leave it behind there are raging rivers poisonous snakes hostile natives some of you won't return so kiss your families goodbye count your life for nothing but if we go we will make it and we will save that village now who's with me and everyone cheers, right? It's, the, it's that scene in the movie. Why? Because a call to being a disciple is not a call to join a political campaign. It's a call to join a rescue mission. It's a call to join a rescue mission. Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't be lackadaisical. Are you all in? And then he says to the group that says they're all in, count the cost. But the reward the benefit, the joy is so wonderful. But count the costs. Because if you don't count the costs ahead of time and you run into a... So if you run into a poisonous snake on a campaign trail, you're a little mad. Like, hey, I was supposed to be you know, going door to door and handing out leaflets and flyers for this campaign trail and I ran into a poisonous snake. What's going on? But if you run into a poisonous snake on a rescue mission in the jungle, no surprise there. That's what Jesus is saying. Saying, listen... Know what's coming at you. Count the costs. Be prepared, but join with me on this beautiful rescue mission as we partner to bring life-saving medicine, the medicine of the gospel to a hurting, broken, dying world. Partner with me. It's a rescue mission. So that's what we have here. And then Jesus closes with this beautiful little story, and I really think that this might be the key to unlocking and doing the rest of this. How do we do this? How do we really be humble 
not falsely humble, but really be humble and give God all the glory? How do we really be inclusive with people who make us uncomfortable? How are we really all in and counting the costs? How do we do it? Don't lose your flavor. Don't lose your flavor. Here's what he says. Salt is good. Salt is good. I like salt. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. People were like, dude, Jesus, I thought you were confusing just a minute ago, but this, what? Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Do you know salt can't lose its flavor? It's a mineral. NaCl. It's a chemical compound. Salt will always be salty. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? So here's what he's saying. And here's what would happen. Because you got a little bit of the historical context. They would get their salt from salt marshes. From drying out salt and salt marshes. And the salt that they would get from salt marshes was not very pure. It had a lot of impurities, a lot of imperfections, a lot of other stuff other than salt in it. So, kind of like me, a lot of impurities, a lot of imperfections, a lot of stuff other than that salt that I'm supposed to have. And here's what would happen. That salt would get wet. It would get rained on if you left it outside. It would get spilled on. It would get splashed. Humidity and the salt would dissolve. And the saltiness would wash away. And what you were left with was just the trace minerals, just the leftover stuff. What happens is the salt would get diluted. It gets diluted. It just gets its saltiness washed away. But here's the really interesting thing about that. The same way that impure salt gets diluted is the same way that pure salt gets refined. So if you have a bunch of impure salt and you want pure salt, you put water on it intentionally, but you gather up the water. You gather up the water and then you let the water boil away and what you're left with is pure salt. So here's the question for me and for you tonight. Am I being diluted by the water of the world or am I being refined by the water of the word? Am I salt that's being diluted? Because I'm just allowing these things, this rain that's coming, that's hitting me, these hard times, or this stuff that I'm doing to myself, or just culture to just wash away my saltiness? Or am I allowing God to wash out my imperfections and my impurities and be refined and get saltier and saltier and saltier and bring beautiful, wonderful flavor to a world full of bland I mean, that's the thing, man. When you look at what the world is selling compared to what Jesus is offering, it's just bland. And when we have the saltiness, when God is purifying us, we see joy unspeakable. When God is purifying me, it might not be easy, but I have peace and joy and peace and confidence in who I am in my Savior. That's not bland. That's wonderful. That's desirable. 
that's beautiful and tasty. And that's the final thing. I gotta stand back and I gotta look at myself. This is a daily thing. This is a weekly thing. Lord, today, did I get diluted or did I get refined? I got diluted today, Lord. Okay, well, gather it up. It's not wasted. You're the great redeemer. Gather up that water that washed away my saltiness. Lord, burn it off. Refine me. Make me new again so that I can partner with you in this rescue mission to bring the gospel. Amen? Father, thank you for Luke. Thank you for this wonderful passage. Father, we're being set up. We're being watched. I pray that we would be wise. I pray that we would be innocent. Make us humble people and inclusive people and people who are all in, Lord. Refine us even this day. Lord, you have been refining us this night as you've washed us with the water of the word. Now may we take it out these doors and do something with it. Give flavor. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.